This edition of The Recap was first broadcast on the 12th of December 2015 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Tom Edwards and welcome to The Recap, bringing you the highlights from the past week's live news and analysis programmes broadcast right here on Monocle 24. In the next half hour, we'll bring you some of the very best interviews, reports and more from The Globalist, The Briefing, Midori House and The Monocle Daily. Coming up, after Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull gets a hard-handed treatment from the famously tough Lee Sales we discuss the etiquette of a modern political one-on-one interview. There has to be more subtlety and less entertainment value, maybe, in the way that politicians are grabbed round the neck. We will also analyse the French Front National Party's success at the first round of voting in regional elections. And we hear how and why Singapore wants to be known not only as a business hub, but also as the cultural capital of the region. When you look at other cities, artistic revolution tends to happen from the ground up as well as from top down. That is definitely happening in Singapore because you have a younger artistic community that's been educated overseas. We will also hear the week's luxury news and try to solve the trouble Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's having with his pet dog. All that and much more coming up in the next half hour right here on The Recap with me, Tom Edwards. France first, where the country's far-right Front National Party made big gains in the first round of voting last weekend in regional elections. For an update on what this means for the country, I spoke to our correspondent in Paris, Tom Burgess-Watson, and regular Monocle 24 contributor Marie Billon, a French journalist based here in London, on Monday's edition of The Briefing. What we have to remember is that where they have more than 40%, that's where Marine Le Pen and Marion Maréchal-Le Pen are basically heading the list, as we say. So basically a lot of people vote for them as well because they are well-known, because they are kind of trustworthy in a way that, for example, Jean-Marie Le Pen wasn't. So that's about, I think, of the reason why there's 40%, this score basically in those regions. But in general, in France, yes, the score of the Front National is better in a way that we thought it would be, which is kind of worrying, of course, for the uh, government parties, the socialists and the Les Républicains. Tom, what's the response from the power brokers, the political observers, if you like, as well? Presumably they're fearful. Are they confident, though, that in the sort of medium term, this seeming success for the Front National maybe won't convert into real power? Or are they worried about that prospect? I think, first of all, voter intentions in a presidential election are quite often quite different from those in regional, local, municipal or European elections. So that's one thing to bear in mind. And of course, it's very much on everybody's mind here. What kind of chance does Marine Le Pen stand in the 2017 presidentials, given this the last electoral gauge, if you like, before the nation votes in 2017? I think what we just heard there, which was very interesting as well, is the word trust. She has shown the French people that she is gaining their trust. You know, she's won their trust because never before has the Front National won a region, not since the party was founded in 1972. And the more Le Pen and her party 
can prove that they can run towns, they can run cities, now they can run regions. It gives them the credibility to argue that they're now capable of running a nation, which perhaps they couldn't argue before. The newspapers here that I've seen have used the same word on their front page, le choc, which hardly needs any translation at all. But we have seen that before. It's actually a bit of a déjà vu. We've had similar headlines in the past when the Front National has had similar success. But I think everyone agrees that this success is greater than any other they've had. But I think the timing so soon after the Paris attacks, the state of the economy, the government deeply unpopular as we already knew it was, perhaps we shouldn't be so very shocked. Marie, tell me, are the issues in this regional election local issues or are people sidetracked by big picture questions confronting France. How would you characterise it? Well, it's always the case that for any election, voters vote for the national issues. They have that in mind, of course, all the time. For the regional elections, for the small number of people who vote, most of them, normally, they still have the local issues in mind. There's employment, there's services and the kind of thing that they think about when they go to vote for this kind of elections. But with François Hollande, the president, being so low in the polls and with everything that's happening and everything that happened with the Paris attacks. Of course, people think about the broader picture more than they would have had if the elections were held before the Paris attack. But I do think, and I saw that in a few newspapers, some people say it's all down to the Paris attacks. That's why the Front National is now ahead and perhaps the first party in France. I don't think that's the case. I think they've been building up to this. For example, for the European election, they had 25% of the votes. So it's not new. They are getting trust. They are more basically managed in a way. Mm, mm. And their ideas have been taken out by Nicolas Sarkozy when he was president and even François Hollande with these ideas of taking off the nationality of someone who's been convicted for terrorism. That's something that comes from the far right as well. So they are basically gaining centre ground in a way. That was Monocle's Paris correspondent Tom Burgess-Watson and the French journalist Marie Billon speaking to me on Monday's briefing. You're listening to The Recap on Monocle 24. Now, on Tuesday's edition of The Briefing, Monocle's editor Andrew Tark walked through some of the week's top stories from the world of luxury with our regular contributor, Sagra Masira de Rosen. They began by discussing the closure of Jonathan Saunders and asking if that exemplifies the difficulty facing young designers struggling to stay afloat. It's just incredibly significative of what's going on in fashion today that is more and more complicated as a business, particularly given the traditional business model, which is very based on wholesale. And I think that that it drives younger brands and young designers to a very, very difficult financial position. I wonder whether some of the, you know, I know that we saw changes at the head of Dior and things this year. Now, is that also because even for smaller brands, being a luxury player these days involves so many things. You're meant to be doing a cruise collection. You're meant to be doing... Absolutely. All... I think even it doesn't matter the size and it doesn't matter the positioning. The expectations are so high these days that even for a small brand with, uh, you know, five to ten million pounds in revenues is almost expected to have the same caliber of imagery, of store fit or quality than a brand like uh, Gucci or Prada or a multi-billion brand. And I think that is the public's expectations of what a fashion brand and a designer is able to offer today are just completely unrealistic. And the thing that you kind of put the spotlight on for us today is that Chanel and Hermes 
have been buying up some of their suppliers. Now, yeah. we know that Hermes already owns quite a lot of its own kind of production chain. Hmm. Is this because it wants to control cost? It wants to control quality? What inspires these changes? I think, most importantly, it's not, it's not the cost. I think is the availability and the ability for these brands that are like at the very, very top of the luxury pyramid to be able to have the proper raw materials, the raw materials that they need, in this case of Hermès by buying Tannery Dupuis, which was a long-term supplier of Hermès. Chanel is already known for buying up as many traditional suppliers as possible. I mean, from cashmere to hat makers, shoemakers, embroidery, ateliers, that otherwise they will be also faced with a very, very tough environment in terms of competition. So they just buy them up, integrate them into the business as core suppliers for the products. And just tell me, we're coming up to the very important final weeks of the Christmas trading period and the sale period. What's your snapshot of this year in luxury? Do you think, you know, we've seen the companies challenged in China. Do you think it's been a kind of hold steady year or do you think... It's been a terrible year. (laughs) (laughs) I think you start with one of the biggest enemies of luxury is terrorism. So we had our share of that. But in the last kind of few weeks, it's been uh, horrible. That kind of makes everybody afraid and it's a very bad thing for the luxury consumer. It's also a lot of kind of moving chairs in designers as the other thing. And a definite slowdown in China that has killed a lot of growth stories. Monocle's regular luxury expert, Sagra Marcira de Rosen there, speaking to our editor, Andrew Tuck, on Tuesday's edition of The Briefing. You're listening to The Recap on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Now, in the early days of television, political leaders were treated with the kind of reverence you'd reserve today only for elderly royals. Where once we used to ask if ministers could spare a moment or two to enlighten our viewers about current affairs of state, now things are very different. Here's the Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull being interviewed by Lee Sales on the ABC's flagship 7.30 programme. Is there a risk that this issue could turn into a running sore for you the way that, say, Craig Thompson turned into for Julia Gillard? Well, Lee... Again, I'm sorry we've, you've lost interest in innovation. There's and, lots uh, of issues we can walk and chew gum at the same that, time. No, well, it, well, the problem is we can't. You well, see, we, we can't can chew gum at the same if, time because... Look, we, I, I, look you know, if every guest on the programme came on and they only got to talk about what they wanted to talk about, it would be a very different programme. Now, listen, how let, me, in, let me... Let me ask you this question. How interested me, do you think I ask the your audience on this are? I think they're very interested, Do you think they're more interested in innovation I'll tell you what I think they're interested in. One of your colleagues resigning from the Liberal Party party to join the National Party, mm-hmm. Ian McFarlane. A number of your colleagues have criticised him, including the mm-hmm. Attorney General, George Brandis, who says it's left a bad taste in people's mouth. Mm-hmm. Turnbull was there to talk about a new billion-dollar innovation package, but was not happy to be asked about problems with the government's national broadband network. Dr Phil Clark, lecturer in comparative and international politics at SOAS in the University of London, and Roger Boys, diplomatic editor of The Times, discussed the modern interview etiquette with Monocle's Paul Osborne on Tuesday's edition of Midori House. This says a huge amount about Turnbull as an individual, but also the Liberal Party as a whole, that they've gotten so used to compliant journalists who will ask all of the softball questions. And the minute that Turnbull is confronted with a journalist who asks him something difficult, he completely goes to water. 
A lot of this has to do with the general media atmosphere in Australia at the moment. And we've had a conservative government now for the last four or five years. The Murdoch press has given them a completely free ride. Turnbull, when he was a minister, I think got very used to turning up to interviews with the Murdoch press, basically with the script already written. And the ABC in Australia, which had the interview that you've just heard, has been one of the very few media outlets to try and hold this government accountable. When Tony Abbott was prime minister, he was on this witch hunt against the ABC and said that they were this kind of lunatic, you know, left-wing communist media outlet that was, you know, trying to bring the country down and it was sort of anti-Australian. There's also in the background to all of this a fight between the ABC and this current government. And I think Lee Sales was kind of channeling some of that in her fairly tough questioning of Turnbull, shall we say. Actually, combative political interviews are something that all politicians expect where do you earn the right to become combative? How far down the line do you allow the politician to spin their line? Actually, I have some sympathy with Turnbull, not just because I work for a newspaper that's owned by River Murdoch, by the way, <laughs> but, but also, actually, that innovation package was interesting and the defection wasn't very interesting. So, as I say, with the Paxman thing, it was similar. The question was interesting, but we never got an answer and... It wasn't that interesting for the viewers to make a gladiatorial contest of it. So I think there has to be more subtlety and less entertainment value, maybe, in the way that politicians are grabbed around the neck. Roger Boys, the diplomatic editor of The Times, and Phil Clark, lecturer in comparative and international politics at SOAS, chatting to Monocle's Paul Osborne there on Tuesday's edition of Midori House. You're listening to The Recap, a look back at the best coverage of the week just gone in live news programmes hosted here on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Now, all this week on the station, we've been through the fine pages of Monocle's brand new issue of The Forecast, available at all good newsstands now. One of the articles takes us to Singapore, where the new National Gallery aims to change perceptions of the island state at home and abroad. But with Singaporean authorities being known for some heavy-handed censorship, can the country's arts scene really blossom? And do young artists want to stay in the country at all when what they do is strictly controlled? The author of the piece, Jason Lee, explained a little more about the new art institution to Monocle's Marcus Hippie. I think when you ask people about their image of Singapore, you often hear words like sterile, sanitised boring, soulless. And so the government has been trying very hard to want to change that. And with the National Gallery Singapore, it kind of puts forward this art institution that wants to rival the like of the Louvre, Met, Tate Modern kind of institution. So it wants to reflect the country's coming of age, not just in terms of finance, but also in terms of art and culture. And it's not every day you get to open this big national gallery that's housed in two very stately historic buildings. So what is your feeling now? What does Singapore actually want? They want to change the way people see that island nation. Why is that? It's also Singapore's 50th birthday. So I think whenever you reach a certain milestone in your life, let alone if you're a country, you want to look back and you want to reflect on how far you've come. And in fact, the Singapore Gallery in the museum is titled Siapa Nama Kamu, which means what is your name? And that exactly encapsulates what the government is trying to do, what the museum is trying to do, who what is Singapore? Who is Singapore? And the role art has to play in Singapore. So there is an amazing museum now, but does that at the same time mean that Singapore's culture scene is experiencing some sort of a revival? So the thing about Singapore's uh, quote-unquote uh, renaissance, or artistic renaissance, is a very concerted effort pushed by the top down, right? It's by the government. So you have the National Gallery Singapore, you have the various art museums, all these uh, institutions 
stations very recently in the past maybe decade or so underwent renovations and overhaul. But what's interesting to me is that when you look at other cities, artistic revolution tends to happen from the ground up as well as from top down. That is definitely happening in Singapore because you have a younger artistic community that been educated overseas, trained, a lot of them go to uh, goldsmiths here, they come back uh, to Singapore and they want to bring that artistic creativity to Singapore and sometimes they are met with opposition from the government. After having been at the National Gallery, do you think there's been a lot of censorship? Do you think all these pieces of art that are there on display have actually, you know, gone through a careful evaluation? So every piece of work that's shown at National Gallery has to be approved by the government first. So the curators submit the artworks that they want to put up to the government and the government gives the green light. And the curators that I've spoken to have said that they are trying to push the boundaries. So you see uh, there's a particular artwork in the Southeast Asian gallery that deals with gender identity and the curators kind of just slipped it together with everything else that she wants to be uh, shown and that got through. So you can see that there's always this little game that the curators are playing and works that stand out to me. It's works like that that kind of reflect this changing attitude in Singapore society and even the relationship between the government and the curators that to me is interesting. Has there been any incidences yet regarding censorship, by the way? (laughs) It's funny you ask that because I don't know if this relates directly to censorship or just bureaucratic red tape, but in the opening week of the National Gallery, the gallery shop hosted an exhibition by a family art collective called Holy Crap. It's a family. So the two young kids had a series of paintings, 13 paintings, hung up on the wall. And the National Gallery Singapore made them bring it down because all exhibitions had to be approved by the curatorial board. So it's kind of ironic that this organization that positions itself as trying to promote Southeast Asian Singaporean art is literally muffling the voice of the young artists in Singapore. Monocle's Jason Lee there talking to Marcus Hippie and you can read that whole piece and a host more fascinating insights from around the world in Monocle's brand new issue of The Forecast and our brand new film on the National Gallery Singapore will premiere on Thursday on Monocle's website so don't miss that either. You're listening to The Recap on Monocle 24. Aside from those Americans who constitute his following there are really... Only two sorts of people paying much attention to Donald Trump. One is the person genuinely terrified that Trump might actually win the GOP nomination and perchance the White House. The other, who possibly possesses a slightly better historical perspective, understands the tradition he represents and can therefore better enjoy the show. Donald Trump is far from the first populist grandstander to have run for president, of course, nor is his tactic of making himself a national political figure by appealing to paranoia original. American democracy has always been what its most astute observer H.L. Mencken described as a carnival of bunkum, and as such, it needs its sideshows. This is something Andrew Muller and Emma Nelson discussed with Jason Horowitz of the New York Times on Wednesday's edition of the Monocle Daily. You know, history shows us, unfortunately, it can be a very useful tactic, right? So that, that's what we're kind of faced with. And, it, you know, in the United States, we're not immune from this, right? If you look, going back more than a century, in the 1850s, there was a nativist party known as the Know Nothings, who was an anti-immigrant party that were scared to death of the Catholics coming in and the Irish. In the 1900s, you had the Red Scare, who were scared of anarchy. In the 30s, because of the Depression, again, you had these people who were scared that people were going to come in and take their jobs. And so you had people like Father Coughlin, who was a Catholic priest who essentially preached against the Jews. Huey Long, you know, Senator McCarthy, preached, you know, was against communism and scared the country. So there's a long history of this. What's different now 
is that as much as everyone thinks that this is implausible, Trump has been leading the, the nomination process now for more than four months, and his supporters don't seem to be going anywhere. And if his supporters stay with him, it's not clear who else can actually slip by him. What sort of role do you think that social media plays now enabling demagogues or indeed combating them? I mean, is it possible to imagine that a Huey Long or a George Wallace or even a Joseph McCarthy would have prospered in the online age? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was talking to some experts about this today. And when you look back at what Wallace was saying, while clearly race-baiting and, you know, segregationist message, it was almost gentlemanly compared to what Trump is saying. So there's definitely <laughs> the sense of this coarsening of the conversation and the idea that the coarser your language is, the more attention you're going to get and the more people are going to say that you're speaking the truth, that you seem more authentic. And Trump has sort of mastered this, right? But when he says these things, he seems like he really means it. And when these other candidates, on the, especially on the Republican side, who it should be said are not all disagreeing with him completely on policy, but they just sound different, which is something itself to explore. But anyway, supporters seem to like the authentic guy more, which makes sense. Why go for, you know, Trump light if you can have the real thing? Jason Horowitz, political reporter for The New York Times, there in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Muller and Emma Nelson on Wednesday's edition of the Monocle Daily. You're with the recap here on Monocle 24. Time now for a highlight from Thursday's Globalist. Once seen as a symbol of rebellion adorning the lips of James Dean or Lauren Bacall, the days of a glamorous cigarette habit look to have been stubbed out pretty much once and for all. Some of the world's leading tobacco companies, though, are trying to spark the cigarette up once more, in the media at least, by suing the UK government over plain packaging controls. A six-day hearing began in London court on Thursday, arguing that the state will infringe the intellectual property rights of companies like Philip Morris if rules on this packaging go ahead. If the legislation comes into force, brands, some of which have been around since the age of Queen Victoria, will be made to use plain brown packs. There'll be no corporate logos, but there will be graphic images of the diseased body parts of smokers. Georgina Godwin was joined by Akshat Ratti, science and health reporter at Quartz.com, to find out more. One of the things that they're going to argue in their case against Britain's ruling is that Australia passed this law in 2012. It's been three years and a bit and they are going to argue that there has been no decline in smoking levels in Australia. That, though, is not true. If you look at the numbers, and this is something I pulled up very recently from a professor of public health at University of Sydney called Simon Chapman, his figures clearly indicate that there is a difference. So looking at 11 quarters since March 2013, there's been a decline of 20.8%. This is after the law came into action compared to only 15% in the similar period before that. The way this works is that it's not like putting taxes on cigarettes. That's, in technical term, is a proximal attack on something. And that will have an immediate impact on people's consumption of goods. And we can see that. You increase the price or the tax on tobacco, and you see an immediate decline in usage. But advertising works much more slowly. It has a distal effect. And so what you will see when the law comes into action is a slow decline, not the sort of decline that you would see with taxes. And that is something that the British government and the Department of Health will argue. And surely if you can't see the brand, if there's nothing to differentiate what you're buying, you'll just go for the cheapest one. 
Yes, that's their fear that they'll be down training, as they call it, that people will choose the cheaper stuff over theirs. But it would add more than that because they may also take it off shelves. So once you don't see uh, cigarettes at all, you're not going to want to have a cigarette just because you're not having that desire. Mm. So the effect that it'll have on consumers will be multi-pronged and have different things that will act against their desire to have more cigarettes. The main case though is also how you're not going to have adults who have been smokers for many many years deciding not to smoke just because the packaging on a cigarette has changed it's really children and teenagers who are likely to look at other people and want those cigarettes based on the packaging and the design and the brand where the impact would be the mm. greatest today is when the court case starts it all rather relies on a pretty arcane point of law doesn't it about intellectual property yes so they're going to say that the ruling infringes on their intellectual property right because the trademark is not just the name of the company but it's also the design it's also the logo it's also the font but trademark is also a negative right it's a right to say that nobody else will be using your logo nobody else is going to use marlboro and so if all companies have to follow this it means that the government's ruling is not infringing on their intellectual property mm. rights. And that is, again, something that the government would be arguing for. That was Akshat Rati, a science and health reporter at Quartz.com, in conversation with Monocle's Georgina Godwin on Thursday's Globalist. And we finish today's programme with a story of a troubled and troubling pet dog. It turns out that the Israeli Prime Minister's dog is more bite than bark. Benjamin Netanyahu's top dog, Kaya, has decided to chomp down on a couple of political visitors at a Hanukkah celebration recently. Monocle's executive editor, Steve Bloomfield, joined me to talk about the world of doggy diplomacy on Thursday's briefing. Really, where to start? OK, let's start with Sharon Haskell, who was the first victim because there were two, the first victim of Kaya, the dog. She was bitten. However, she said, to those asking about my welfare, as someone who was once a professional snake wrangler, a small bite from a dog doesn't excite me. So she felt fine about it, no problem. However, five minutes later, Oralon, who is the husband of uh, Deputy Foreign Minister uh, Zippy Hotovli, was also bitten. But the reason, and this is where it gets quite funny... Obviously, it's not funny because someone was bitten. That's that's terrible. But he approached the dog and began to pet her, at which point Netanyahu says, get away from her, she bites. And yes, she she, she then bit. Nice of him to to issue the warning. Exactly. Now, this isn't the only frontline political dog that's making headlines. They're everywhere. We've got Putin. Putin loves the gift of a dog for diplomatic Mm. reasons. Obama has a dog. Obama has dogs and they get a lot of publicity. Are we shifting away? We've talked before on Mark 24 about sort of panda diplomacy and animals in their soft power role. Is this really soft... I don't know, puppy power diplomacy. Is it it an area ripe for further exploration by politicians around the world? Well, Tom, I'm glad you mentioned that. That allows me to talk about possibly the most successful feature Monocle magazine has ever run, which is uh, The Ambassadogs, which was, as the name suggests, a feature on ambassadors and their dogs. So successful it was that we ran it again a year later with fresh dogs. And indeed, I'm already 
inundated with at least two <laughs> requests from readers. No, actually, no, no genuinely. None of those we, 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 we have, ever a... have bared their fangs, would they? Oh, no, 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 no. It would fly no. in the face of... Not at all, not at all. They're quite the opposite. But genuinely, already, two ambassadors have been in touch asking to be in next year's iteration of Ambassadogs. It will be returning in the April issue <laughs> of Monocle magazine, issue 92. We will have at least four new ambassadors and yes there's a mildly serious <laughs> element to this which is that yes you know an ambassador needs to make friends and it needs to show their softer side and the ambassador's residence needs to be a welcoming place and on the whole if you've got the right dog well, i was going to say is there a flip side to that and ju- just briefly you know with the likes of netanyahu who, who let's be honest has a you know a reputation locally and internationally mm. for his approach to political dealings you know, can this actually harm a reputation or do you think most people view it as a sort of a, you know, a frothy news story that doesn't really go anywhere? I don't think anyone is going to look at Bibi Netanyahu and say, I really like this guy, but he let his dog bite two people. Now, now I don't like him. Equally, I don't think anyone's going to be like, well, I really didn't like Netanyahu, but this story about the dog makes him even worse. That was Monocle's executive editor, Steve Bloomfield, on Thursday's Briefing Download, that show and all our others on iTunes via SoundCloud or, of course, at Monocle's own website, monocle.com. That's just about all we've got time for on this week's episode of The Recap. The show was produced by Marco Sippi and edited by Weidong Lin. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of our live news programmes here on Monocle 24. But for now, from me, Tom Edwards, thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. 